Well, hey, friends, welcome again to the next episode of Mike's podcast. And we're going to get back into Job here in just a little bit. But first, before we get into that, I have my first guest this episode. Guest, would you say hi? Hello. So this is my son, Isaac, and uh, I wanted to have Isaac on here because he is getting a little bit of internet fame in my small corner of the internet world right now, um, because we are taking a picture every night of the growth of his mustache. We're calling it Quarantine Stash, and we're posting it on Instagram stories every night. And so uh, if you don't follow me on Instagram, it's mgoldsworthy. And you can go through all of the days that we've done so far. We have it as a highlight there on the profile. But Isaac, tell us, um, how did the quarantine stash get started? Do you remember how you decided to to grow this? Well, um, I don't really like to shave my stash. Um, So I've only shaved like two or three times in total. And I... One day you, it was like at the beginning of quarantine, you were asking me if I wanted to, uh, if you told me that I needed to shave my mustache. And I said, no, I don't really want to do that. And so then you told me, you know what? Uh, If you want to, we cannot shave your mustache until after quarantine. And so then it started. So, how does your mom feel about your quarantine stash? Um, I don't think she was very excited about it at first, but she's getting a little bit more into it. Okay. And then, um, how often does your mom ask you to shave your stash, and how often do you actually shave it? Every couple of months or so, when it starts to show, she'll ask me to shave it, and it'll... After a couple of times, I'll be like, you know what? Fine, I'll shave it. Every couple of months, I thought it was like every two weeks she asked you to shave and (laughs) that you shave about every three months. Yeah, that's probably accurate. That's probably accurate. All right, my last question is one of the things, the responses that we've gotten. So I get every time I was telling Isaac, every time like I talk to a pastor from somewhere around the country, one of the first things that they say is, hey, before we talk about whatever we're going to talk about, can I just tell you, I'm loving your son's quarantine stash. Um, But one of the comments that we get is people say, like, it doesn't look like it's growing. And so I told you that, Isaac, what's your what's your response to the people who say it doesn't look like the stash is growing? Well, I said, you know, if you took a picture of a plant growing every single day, you wouldn't really notice the difference. But then after a couple of weeks, if you took if you looked at the very first picture and the very last picture, you would see a difference. (laughs) All right. Um, and, And where can where can our friends find you on social media? Nowhere. (laughs) Why aren't you on social media? I don't like social media. (laughs) You're right, talking into a microphone, staring at a wall right now? Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for being my first guest, buddy. Oh, my gosh. I freaking love that kid. It's so fun to have him come on here. And um, so, you know, if you have if you've tracked with any of the quarantine stash photos of Isaac, you should know that all of the poses that he's offering, they're his poses. He's coming up with it all. And so that's been super fun. Um, So if you do want to find that, if you want to track with us on that, uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Graham, who does this uh, incredible web work, 
did a little bit of back-end work on my website so I could have a space for like podcast information to live. And so if you go to mikegoldsworthy.com, there's a podcast page on there. Go click on that. And under today's podcast episode, so so the third episode, you'll find like links to those those pictures. You'll find links to actually I also have um, if you're not following me on social media, I have put out several times that um, I'm doing Zoom calls with people, these 25-minute Zoom calls for whatever. I've been, it's been fascinating. I've met with like pastors around the country. I have met with just individuals, some people who I have known, some people I haven't known, and some of it's been pastoral care stuff, just talking through junk in life right now. Some of it's been like strategy for church stuff. Some of it's like working through sermons and figuring out like how do you how do you preach right now and some of it's like not even having to do with right now but just talking about larger church strategy and, and even some theology stuff so i would love to i'd love to do that with you so if if you want to connect right now um, i've got some time right now and i've got a link to be able to do that at mikegoldsworthy.com go to the Go to the podcast section, it'll be under this specific podcast. But now I want to move into um, what we've been talking about for a few episodes already as we're kind of working through the book of Job and asking what are the things that are going on there that are speaking to us now in our moment today. Uh, I'm calling this series, When My Answers Don't Work, because that seems to me to be one of the major overriding themes of this ancient story is it's confronting us with the reality that there are times where we've got answers that don't seem to work out. And never more is that more apparent in this book than what we're going to look at today, the way that Job's friends respond to him. But before we get to his friends' responses, want to sort of set it up, remember where we have been. And what we discovered last time is that Job's friends see what's happened to him. They see his suffering and they come to bring him comfort. And they sit with him in his suffering for seven days. And for seven days, they're in silence. For seven days, they're just there. They're in it. They recognize that there's nothing that we can say. There's nothing we can do. All we can do is just be with you here. We can acknowledge the suffering and we can sit with you in the suffering. And then Job, appropriately, is the one who breaks the silence. I mean, he should be. He's the one who's suffered. He's the one who's gone through all of the crap. And so he's the one who gets to break the silence. And chapter 3 begins with Job's sort of first monologue. He, he's, it says this. It says that after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. <laughs> like, the first thing that he does is he curses the day of his birth. This this begins this whole like series of these long Shakespearean like monologues because remember the book of Job is is written a bit like a play and everything that's happened before this is sort of setting up the bulk of the play these long back and forth monologues and so Job Job begins Job begins this whole thing and and next week we're going to spend more time talking about what happens with Job and what he's doing. But but to start to understand his friends' responses, we need to know a little bit about Job's response. 
need to know that what Job does is he starts like speaking out of anger with God. Like he's upset. He's like, why was I freaking born? Like it would have just been easier to just been better. All of this calamity, all of this stuff, all of the suffering, all of this junket, it wouldn't have happened. And he directs all of that anger towards God. He questions what God does. He questions what God doesn't do. And honestly, as you read through the book of Job, you find Job gets a bit whiny at times. He, he plays the victim card a bit. And, and it's completely understandable, isn't it? With all that's been taken away from him, with all that he has happened to him, it, it's understandable, but that's where Job has been coming from. And he launches into this monologue, monologue with that, and his friends then react to it. Because what Job is saying, what Job is questioning, the way Job is angry with God, the way that Job is looking at his life, the things that he is sort of wrestling through, thinking about, upset about, offering in the midst of his grief, all of that stuff, it doesn't fit with their theology. In fact, it actually doesn't even really fit, it seems, with Job's theology. It seems that up until this moment that Job has held a very similar theology to his friends. And these empathetic friends who sat in suffering with Job, they have this very quick turn. And they almost, they almost not even almost, they actually turn on Job in some ways. In fact, here's how Job at one point describes it in Job 6, 15. He says, my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams. It's like you show up and you leave, you come and you go, you did this good thing, you sat with me in suffering, you were there for me, you wanted to comfort me, you wanted to be there, and now you just sort of like, you just turned, it just changed, it was different. And I don't, I don't think that that's their intention. They don't intend to turn on Job, they don't tend to have this reaction that actually comes off as trite, and this reaction that actually comes off as almost like even, even attacking Job, I don't think that's their intention because because we've seen their character a bit. They they want to be with him in his suffering. They want to comfort him. They want to be there for him. But they just can't seem to help themselves. Because as we talked about last time, we're uncomfortable with suffering. And when we get uncomfortable with suffering, we tend to do a few things. Last last episode, we, we said when we're uncomfortable with suffering, we, we tend to try and avoid it. We find all kinds of ways to avoid suffering. But another thing that we do when we're uncomfortable with suffering is that we try and explain it. And this is what Job's friends do in these long monologues that they offer. Richard Rohr has said that suffering, suffering is any time that you're not in control. Remember, suffering is relative. We all experience suffering differently because we have different experiences, different lots in life, different places where we're born, different experiences we go through. We all, we all have different stuff. And so our suffering isn't, we don't compare it to another suffering. It's our own thing. And it's when we're not in control. And it's specifically when we're not in control, when it wasn't your choice to not be in control. Sometimes we will give up control for good and beautiful reasons. But suffering is when that happens to us. And we end up in a situation and we end up in an experience where we're not able to control it and it wasn't by our choice. And our most natural tendency when we have these sort of experiences is that we want to regain control. 
And so one way that we try to maintain control is that we want to make sense of something. If I can define it, if I can put parameters around it, if I can explain it, then I have some sort of control over it because I have a definition for it. I can make sense of it. And so even when there's something happening that I can't easily make sense of, I want to make sense of it and I want to explain it because it makes me feel like I have some kind of control in a situation where everything feels out of my control. And so Job's friends have these these long monologues where there's these essentially three arguments that they keep coming back to and keep coming back to over and over, three sort of themes, three ways that they're trying to make sense of Job's suffering, that they're trying to explain it, that they're trying to that they're trying to say like this is how this is why what's happening to you, this is what's going on there. And it's some sort of way for them to try and maintain control by explaining it. Here's the first way they do that. Is they essentially say, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. Like you must you must deserve this in some sort of way. Let me read for you a couple of times where this happens. Chapter 4, verse 7. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Job, you you get what you deserve. This happened to you and you probably did something. You probably did something to anger God. You probably did something that was against what he wants for you. You need to figure out what that is because these things, they don't come out of nowhere. There's a reason that this is happening to you, Job. Or here's how another of his friends say it. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what's right? When your children sinned against him, remember remember early on, I think it was in the first episode we talked about how Job did these things for his children and they would hold parties to like take care of things that they didn't know were being taken care of for them. So he says that when your children sinned against him, against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. This happened because of what they did, Job, that they, they died because of what they did. But if you'll seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now he'll rouse himself on your behalf and he'll restore you to your prosperous state. And so Job, Job, the things that are happening are because because of what you have done, because of what your children have done. And if you'll just turn from your ways, then these things can be restored to you. This, this argument, it shows up today in all kinds of ways by, by people of faith. It shows up in some like just blatantly horrific ways. We have all seen the people who we probably all would denounce who say things like when, a, when any kind of tragedy or suffering happens, they'll be like, this is God's judgment for these sexual sins. And we can Google and we can find all kinds of televangelists. We can find all kinds of all kinds of religious folk who will say things like that, that this calamity is happening because God's judging you. And usually usually it has something to do with some sort of sexual sin that they would uh, equate with it. But I think I also see this showing up all the time in ways that are really like a lot less appalling, that, that maybe feel like it's got a little bit more positive spin We'll say things like this. We'll say, well, you know what? What's happening right now with COVID-19? Well, we've treated the land poorly. 
God gave us God gave us the land to care for, and we've treated it poorly. And God's saying like it needs a rest. In fact, we can even see that. You look out and you see like the pollution and how it's cleared up, and you can see pictures of like India and what what India looks like. We're getting all these great things, and the land is getting a rest. And so we've we've done this thing that was wrong. We treated the land poorly. It's not what God intended. And so God is saying this needs a rest. This is God correcting that. Or maybe maybe you've heard somebody say something like this. We've had wrong priorities. And so God's forcing us to slow down and he's forcing us to consider what's most important. He's causing us to have to like have some perspective that maybe we've had overcommitted, overbusy lives. And this is God's way of like giving us and forcing us to have an extended Sabbath. And like it sounds kind of good at one level. It's this positive spin, though, that's really saying the same thing that Job's friends are saying. Saying, you weren't living the way that God created you to live. And so he's doing this to you so that you'd reconsider your ways. And maybe those are more appropriate or politically correct reconsidering your ways and saying this is God's divine judgment for sexual sins, but it's still saying the same thing. It's at the root, it's the same thing. It's saying like, you're, you're not doing the thing that God intended for you to do. You're not caring for the land and the way God intended for you to care for it. You're not slowing down, living with rhythms of life the way that God intended for you to. You're not, you're not, living, you're not living with the right kinds of priorities. And so God, maybe, maybe God's doing this so that you would readjust, so that you'd refocus, so that you would like, get in the right kind of alignment. And so, so that's the first argument that Job's friends give over and over and over. Second sort of argument that they give to Job. Job, the reason that you're suffering, that this suffering is happening to you, um, actually, they don't say the reason that this is happening to you. They say that in this suffering, Job, you need to have some perspective. Your suffering is only temporary. Here's, here's one place where one of his friends says it, Job chapter 11, verse um, 13. It says, yet if you devote your heart to him, And if you stretch out your hands to him, if you devote your heart to God, stretch out your hands to God, if you put away the sin that's in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you'll lift up your face. You'll stand firm without fear. You'll surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as the water's gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. It's this way of saying, Job, Job, you're going to move past this. And Job, you're going to forget about it one day. It's just going to be a glimmer. It's going to be, it's going to be this like faint memory. It's going to be this distant memory because your mourning is going to be turned into dancing. Your suffering is going to be turned into this positive thing. That this, this argument that his friends give, this is the like, you know what? In the scheme of things, this really isn't that big of a deal. This this is like people saying, you know what? People have been through worse and they've gotten through it. Get some perspective here. What about the people who went through World War II? What about the rationing that happened then? What about what happened to the families of 9-11? What about what happened in during the last major pandemic? What about what about these things? This is not bad compared to all of that. People have been through worse. They've gotten through it. Have some perspective, my friends. This is the people who are saying that. 
This is the people who are saying, you know what, you're going to look back at this and you're going to have fond memories of this time. You're going to have fond memories of the way that you had dinner with your family every night. You're going to have fond memories of the creative things that you came up with. You're going to have fond memories of this. Or, or this is the people who are saying, you know what, it's just, it's all going to work out in the end. It's all going to be good in the end. I don't know how it's all going to, but it's all going to be good in the end. In some sort of way, there's going to be this positive thing that's going to come out of it. And the problem with that is that while those are really great sentiments, what if it doesn't all work out in the end? And what about, what, what if that's true maybe for some people? What about the people that it isn't true of? What about where that's not happening? What about where it isn't better? What about when it actually gets worse? What about all of that? I mean, has it ever been helpful to you when you have experienced some sort of loss? When you've gone through some sort of suffering yourself? Has it ever been helpful to you when somebody's like tried to offer some advice to give you some perspective in that moment? You... You break up with a significant other. Like, you know what? There's plenty of others out there, man. There's some there's somebody who's so much better for you out there. Like, is that actually helpful? You got fired from your job. Your friend says, you know, one day, one day you're gonna see this as a defining moment. You're not there yet, but one day you're gonna see this. Maybe your parent dies. And some well-meaning person of faith says to you, what? You're going to see them one day in heaven, and then you'll get to spend all of eternity with them. And this is just this short period of time between now and eternity. And then when you're in eternity with them, you'll have all of that with them. And so, and so don't, don't treat this as if, as if this is the be all end all. And it's all of these like well-meaning ways to try and have some sort of answer to try and make some kind of sense of the suffering. But when you've been in those places and those things have been said to you, they come up short, don't they? It's what happens with Job's friends. It's, it's the second thing that they say to him over and over. The third thing that we find them saying to him over and over is that, Job, God's trying to teach you something in this. And so what you need to do is you need to learn to pay attention to what is it that he wants you to learn in all of this? What, what can you learn from this suffering, Job? Here's one of the ways that their friend, his friends say it, verse 17 of Job chapter 5. He says, Blessed is the one whom God corrects. And so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. This is this way of saying, Job, pay attention to this time and try and have this perspective that says, what is God teaching me now? What can I learn right now? in this. And when we say things like that, it's because we want there to be some sort of purpose. We want there to be some sort of reason for our suffering, that we don't want it to go to waste. We don't want it to just be this thing that happened. But the thing is, like, what if there are times where there is no purpose for the suffering? What if there are times where, like, crap happens and it just sucks? I think of this time where Jesus says that the rain the rain falls on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That calamity happens to good people and calamity happens to bad people. And there's not necessarily a reason for it. It just happens. It just kind of sucks. And so Job's, Job's friends have these answers. They have these nice, neat, clean, pat answers. And you, when you get to the end of Job, this, this, like long, this long book, when you get 
to the end of it, here's what, here's, here's what uh, the Lord says. It says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he then said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, one of Job's friends, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. It's Job 42.7. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as your servant Job has. Now, again, next week, we're going to look at like, what is it that Job said? Why is he being commended? But what's fascinating to me about this is that you could actually defend each of the views that his friends give in the Hebrew scriptures, the three things that they say, the three themes that they come back to over and over and over again, that Job, you must have caused this. You must have some sort of evil. Evil begets evil. You reap what you sow. You could defend that from the Hebrew scriptures. Job, you need to have a bigger perspective, an eternal perspective. Your suffering is only temporary. Joy comes in the morning. You can defend that from the Hebrew scriptures. The, the idea that like you're supposed to learn something in this. God disciplines those he loves, and you can learn something in this. You can defend that from the Hebrew scriptures. You could point me to chapter and verse and show me, no, no, Mike, these are valid arguments. The things that Job's three friends are saying, they're valid arguments. And yet, what the Lord says to them, is he says, I'm angry with you because you have not spoken the truth about me. It seems, my friends, that it's actually possible that you can hold on to right theology and be wrong. They're so sure that they understand how God works, that they can't for a moment consider that their answers maybe don't actually work here, that their answers maybe aren't universal truths, that their answers maybe are things that work in a certain situation and don't work in every situation. And we all have these moments, we all have these times when our experience doesn't match our theology. Now, I know for some of you, theology is this word that like you try and avoid, that you, you're like, I'm not a theologian, I don't have a theology. But the thing is, we all have theologies. Our theology is just basically our construct, our idea of what we believe about God. So we believe about how the world works. If you're an atheist, you have a theology about who God is, who God isn't. So we all have some sort of theology, some sort of idea of like, here's the way the world works. Here's the way that ultimate reality interacts with this world. And when our experience doesn't match our theology, we end up having a few different ways that we tend to move forward. One of them is that we just opt out of it, that this is the belief system I've had and, and it's not working anymore. It doesn't make sense anymore that my experience doesn't line up with it. And so I got to bail on it. And so maybe that's been your experience. You bailed on faith or you said, like, I want nothing to do with organized religion anymore. Whatever sort of your construct was, whatever it meant for you that you're like, I've, I've got to get out of that thing. And so some people will just sort of bail on it. What some people will do is when their experience doesn't match their theology is that they'll sit in it and they'll let it transform them, which is what I would actually argue is what happens with Job. But the third thing, the third thing that, that we'll do is what Job's friends actually do. And it's we'll double down on what we previously believed. Because we get assurance from the ideas that we've been holding on to. 
It makes us feel good. To It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure because we've got these well-defined ideas about who God is and about how the world works. And if I can just hold on to those, I'll feel some sense of security. And so what we do is we double down on those things. And the thing that happens when we do that, when we double down on that stuff, is that we our growth, our growth is stunted. Because we're actually more committed to the way that we thought things would work than we are to to reckoning with the reality of what our experience now is. And so what happens is we will, in this space, often give answers that feel trite. There's a reason that sometimes the way that Christians engage in suffering and the things that we will say, the things that we'll write and post on social media, the things that we will preach from our pulpits, there's a reason. Have you ever read one of those, sat through one of those, listened to one of those, and it just feels trite? It feels trite when it's not engaging in the reality of our experience. That's just like, this is the way things are, and I'm going to hold on to the answers that I've always had And regardless of what the experience now is, I'm going to keep going back and back and back to those answers. And the problem is that we will end up missing an encounter with God in the midst of our suffering, an encounter with what God is doing right here in this, the more and more that we cling to those old answers. I think of of this one experience that Jesus has where it's in John chapter 5 and and he's having this encounter with some of the religious leaders. And one of the things that he says to them that has messed with me over the years, is he says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's like, you're so buried in this book, this good, beautiful, and wonderful book that you actually miss what this book is pointing towards because you think you think you can figure it all out from there. You think you're so stuck in the answers that are there. You know all of your good and right theology. You've got all of that, and yet you could be diligently searching the scriptures. You could be diligently studying the scriptures. You could have all of the right answers, and yet you could actually miss Jesus. It is entirely possible to hold on to right theology and to be wrong. And the sort of like Bible word or the sort of like theological word we would call this is we'd call it idolatry. And idolatry happens in the space when you're so committed to your view You're so committed to your understanding of God that you actually end up missing God. Because in trying to fully explain what God's doing in circumstances that are hard to explain, we're trying to exert control over that circumstance. We're trying to hold on to some sort of control in our lives. And in doing that, in doing that, we'll hold on to the understandings that we've had, the definitions that we've held on to. We will hold on to those things because they are what make the most sense to us. And all of the while, we may be missing the God who's standing right in front of us. I, I, I think I think of the mystics who have... Who have uh, been really influential for me over the years. There's this rich tradition of mysticism in the Christian faith that that we have largely ignored in the Western church at times. And over the last several years, I've just been being introduced to more and more rich saints of the church, women and men 
who we would describe as these mystics who've, who've moved into these rich encounters with God. And, and mystics will talk about coming to a point of recognizing that God moves beyond definition. Now, when the mystics talk about God moving beyond definition, it's not this excuse for this like easy opt-out of trying to define God. Well, God's just bigger. His ways are higher than our ways. I just can't understand it. And I use that as this easy opt-out. It's, it's not that. It, it's not an excuse to define God and make God whatever you want God to be and that, that God just becomes whatever sort of you project onto God. It's not that. In fact, in some ways, it's not a. It's not even a dis, being dismissive of definitions and constructs of God, because we need we need the definitions. The definitions create a sort of framework for understanding God. They give us a construct. They create a sort of like container for God to make sense to us. But here's what can happen: is that as soon as those things become solidified. As soon as our answers, as soon as our definitions, as soon as those things become unmovable, what begins to happen is we start to relate to those things. We start to relate to our definitions. We start to relate to our answers rather than relating to God himself. And so we begin to rely on our confident, sure answers because it helps us to feel like we're a little bit in control during a situation and during an experience when so much is out of our control. I'm, I'm reminded of maybe the most significant self-revelation that God gives in the scriptures. It, it happens at the, remember in Exodus, it's Exodus 3, that there's this bush that's on fire. Moses is walking by this bush that's on fire, and he says, I must see this strange sight. Why there's a bush that's on fire that does not burn up? And, and he goes over, and a voice from within the bush says, remove your sandals, for where you're standing is holy ground. And he has this encounter with God at this burning bush, a bush that's on fire that doesn't burn up. And, and he's commissioned, he's given a calling at this bush to, to go and to free the Israelites, to free them from captivity and from slavery. And he says that when I go to Pharaoh, who should I say has sent me? Now, there's all of these ways that God could give God's name in this moment. There's all these names that God's given in the Hebrew scriptures that define what he does, his characteristics. He could say, tell them that the God who saves has sent you. Tell them that the God who delivers has sent you. That the God who liberates has sent you. Tell them that God is who sent you. But he doesn't define himself that way. Instead, God says... I am. I am who I am. God moves beyond our answers, and God is bigger than our definition. When God is asked to define God's self, God says, I am. And so perhaps one way to engage in our times of suffering is to release the need for control right now. To release our need for control of answers and definitions and the ways that we think that it should work. And that maybe as we, we release the need of control, we open ourselves up a bit more to be able to encounter the God who is there with us, right in front of us, who simply says, I am. 
I'm looking forward to being with you all next time as we explore how Job, how Job handles his suffering, how Job relates to God, what Job does with all of that, and what that says to us in our own experiences of suffering, what that says to us when our answers don't make sense, when our answers don't work anymore. But maybe we can at least walk away today with a little bit of an understanding from Job's friends that maybe, maybe when our answers don't work anymore, the best solution is not to double down on our answers, but to instead simply be able to open ourselves up to say, I can't be in control of this. And that helps us to be open to the God who defines himself as I am. So I'm looking forward to being with you again next time. Grace and peace, my friends.